0: Good morning, Central. It's so great to hear from our market team and all that God's doing through the neighborhood market here at Central. Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, from verse 28 to 32. I invite you to pick up your Bibles at home, turn there yourself, or pick up your phones, devices, and pull up your Bible app. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 28. And we know that for those who love God... who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things
1: thanks Josh for uh, leading us in that time of prayer truly we are living in very unique days right now with all that's going on with covid with all the complexities around what's going on in the us and spreading around the world Josh said it well we're praying that Christ's kingdom would come on the earth as it has already come in heaven. That's what we need above all things, is the kingship of Christ and all that that means for peace, where there is violence, for racial reconciliation, for divisions, all these kind of things. And so we pray, no matter our views on whatever your views are on this whole topic, uh, that his kingdom would come. And we need strength during these days, and that's why we're going through Romans chapter 8, uh, an incredible chapter that leads us into strength upon strength upon strength, and Paul, as we come toward the end of the chapter now, it, it's just moving up to a giant crescendo. And so today, I want to begin by uh, reminding you: if you've read this book before, if you've never heard of it, it's the second most published book next to the Bible. Up to well, it was about twenty years ago. Now some books have surpassed it, but it was a book that was written 1678 by a man named John Bunyan, and the book is, of course, called Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan wrote this book. And he's, what he was trying to do is to teach us about the Christian life. And so what he did is he told a story where a man named Christian leaves the city of destruction. Uh, he meets Christ at the cross. His sins are forgiven. And he begins to travel on a long journey down the king's path toward the celestial city of Zion. And so what Bunyan's trying to teach us there is that the Christian life is one long journey and there are many things that happen to us along the way. One of those little instances Bunyan describes as an occasion where Christian and his friend Hopeful foolishly leave the king's path, they go over a little wall, and they sleep on the grounds of a castle. What they don't know is that this castle is called Doubting Castle, and it is owned by a giant named Despair. The giant named Despair comes and finds them sleeping on his grounds. He captures them. He takes them back to his castle, and he imprisons them in his dungeon. He beats them severely. For four days, they are in this dungeon. They are beaten. They are struggling. The giant tells them they should just commit suicide because they are never going to get out of his dungeon. And so truly, they feel the depths of despair. But on the fourth day, Christian suddenly has an epiphany. And this is what he says. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may walk in freedom. I have a key called promise. It will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so he takes out the key that he's had with him the entire time, puts it in the dungeon door, and very easily opens up the dungeon door, all the other doors, and he and hopeful flee Doubting Castle and get back on the king's path toward the celestial city. Now, Bunyan is trying to teach us at least two things with this little anecdote, this little story along the journey. The first thing is this, that if you are giving your life to Jesus Christ, and you are on this path, you will face times of doubt. There will be moments in your life, Where you will often leave the king's path and you will be imprisoned in Doubting Castle. And the giant of despair may even beat you so much that you also, like Christian, will know what it means to feel like you've lost all hope. Have you ever been in that spot? I confess I've been there many times. Many times throughout my Christian life, I have left the King's path and I've had doubts. So, for instance, over the years, a doubt may be that okay, I know the gospel, I know Jesus has saved me, but I also know that I have failed him many times. Will he really receive me at the end? And looking at all of my circumstances, sometimes they seem to collapse around me. And my circumstances seem to say that God doesn't care about me. So I begin to wonder, does God actually care? He says he's loving, but my circumstances seem to say otherwise. And then probably the most common one is just simply the struggle of life. All the hardships, all the struggles, all the pressure, all the things that come in against you, truly following Jesus and loving him and serving him and all that is against you. And it's so easy in those moments to forget about God, that you don't feel his presence, and you can feel like you're on your own. Have you ever been imprisoned in Doubting Castle? Have you ever felt the beatings of the giant of despair and felt like there's not a lot of hope in going on? That's the first thing Bunyan wants to simply say to us, that on this journey, there will be times of doubt. But the second thing, and this is actually the most important thing that Bunyan wants to teach us there, is how to break free from Doubting Castle. Because, of course, the most striking part of that whole story is how easily Christian gets out of the dungeon. There was no need for him to even spend one hour in that dungeon. Why? He possessed a key. All he had to do is take the key out and open the door. And what was the key? Promise. In other words, the promises of God. And there is perhaps no better way to learn the promises of God that will free you from doubts and the despair that comes with them than the promises that we receive in Romans chapter 8. Here at the end of Romans chapter 8, as we get now to verses 31 all the way to 39, what Paul does here is he asks five questions. Five questions which are going to be triumphant. But under these questions... Each one of them, there is a doubt. There's a doubt that Paul wants to address in order that we can conquer these doubts so we would not be imprisoned within the castle of doubt or be beaten by the giant of despair. So each of these questions contains a doubt that if you don't deal with it, will imprison you. And will lead you into despair. We could really say that these five questions are also five doubting castles with five giants of despair. But why Paul writes this last section? is that he wants to give us five keys. And if we learn how to use these keys, they will open the doors so that we can be freed from Doubting Castle, so we can flee its grounds, we can be back on the king's path, running down the road, and we can be shouting that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can say, I am sure that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you want to know that kind of victory? then let's come and let's join Paul as we look today at the first two questions. There's five, but today we're only looking at the first two, what we might call two castles of doubt, all right? So, the first castle of doubt that arises kind of in our minds as we walk this journey as we're going along has to do with how hard it can be to live for Jesus at times. There is so much that is against us, and like Paul we can ask a question. So what is the question then that can imprison us within Doubting Castle and can even beat us down with despair? Here's the way I'll put it. Doubt number one is this. How will I ever make it to the end when there is so much that is fighting against me? This is the doubt that comes in. When you feel the pressure, when you feel all the things that are against you, really living for Jesus, you can have moments where you can get imprisoned in Doubting Castle, and the question you're, you're asking and you're falling into despair is, I don't even know if I can really make it to the end. I'm trying, but I don't know. There's a lot that is against me. You can see this question in the second half of verse 31. So look at me with verse 31. There Paul asks this question. If God is for us, he says, who? Can be against us. So that's the question. Who can be against us? Now, who is this us that he is referring to? He is referring to the children of God. That is to everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ today, you are part of the us. You're part of those who are on the journey. Your sins have been forgiven. You are on the journey toward the celestial city. That's the us that he's talking about. And this, he is saying, there are many that are against us. Who is against us? On this journey, going towards the celestial city, receiving our final glorification that we talked about last week, who could be against us? Answer, lots of things. There's an awful lot of things that are against us. In fact, sometimes it's so overwhelming that we just say, what's not against us? So let's just track with me some of the things that the Bible says are against us and that you know also from your own experience. First of all, your own circumstances can be against you. I mean, so how many times in life, like you just feel like life is collapsing, uh, it's falling apart, uh, maybe you lost your job, maybe you're getting really sick, you're dealing with chronic pain, maybe it's struggles with mental health issues, whatever it may be, it can just feel overwhelming. And in those moments, you can be led aside into Doubting Castle and think, I don't even really know if I can make it to the end. I'm not really sure about God's love for me. What is against us, Paul? Well, our circumstances can most certainly be against us. But then, secondly, to become a Christian also means to face opposition from the unbelieving world. I don't know about you, but I think within our own culture, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to truly be a Christian. I'm not saying it's as hard as other times and places. But it is becoming increasingly difficult. I know I've talked with many of you who, when you share your stories, you say, even within my own family, it is very difficult to truly love Jesus. There's much that is against me within my own family. Others of you I've talked to say, my workplace is very hard to be a Christian. People people that know that I'm a Christian, they say, I'm narrow-minded, I'm bigoted. I can hardly even express anything without a huge fight, for instance, breaking out and all kinds of things being against me. As Jesus himself said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So our circumstances are against us. The world can be against us, and if that's not hard enough, the Bible also says that there are evil spiritual powers against us. So Paul will write in the letter to Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, not against people, that's not our fight, no, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if at all that's not enough, then also this might be the hardest of all. Our own hearts can be against us. I don't know about you, but this is one of the things I struggle the most with. We want to love God. We want to follow Christ. But how easily we fall into sin. How easily our great desires to serve him with our whole being, how quickly those kind of things can fall away. Just one chapter before Romans 8, at the end of Romans 7, you get to hear Paul himself talking about how his own heart is even against him. He laments the war in his heart, and he says this, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. And then he kind of comes up to this very low place. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. He's struggling, looking at his own heart. He wants to serve Christ, but he's divided within himself. So as we look at this question, who is against us, I don't know about you, but sometimes I sit back, I feel like there's a giant army against me. Uh, uh, Paul, you're asking, who can be against us? Paul, sometimes it just feels like everything is against us. We could ask, what's not against us, Paul? When you feel overwhelmed by this, it is very easy to step off of the king's path and to become imprisoned within Doubting Castle. And when you're imprisoned within Doubting Castle, it's very easy for the giant of despair to come in and to give you one beating after another. For your heart begins to lose hope and you begin to say, I don't even know if I can make it to the end. There is so much that is against me. But, as Bunyan has also showed us, as Paul is going to show us, There is no reason to be imprisoned within Doubting Castle for even one hour. There is no reason to have to take a beating from the giant of despair when we have the key that can set us free. And that key is right here for us in Romans 8 and verse 31. Notice, Paul is not just asking generally what is against us and then showing us all the things that are against us. That's not the point of why he's writing this. No, that is the doubt that's underneath the question. But Paul is giving a great statement of triumph here. Notice that Paul's not asking who can be against us. He is rather saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And when he says, if God is for us, he's not asking a question as if he doesn't know the answer. No, it's more the the rhetorical sense of saying, since God is for us, what could be against us? If God's for us, if God's on our side, who would dare? to stand against us, for God is on our side. That's the sense of this question. Now, I don't know about you, but framed that way, that changes absolutely everything. Oh yes, there is a great army. It's like an army on a hill. It just covers the hill. It's like everywhere you look in front of us, there are adversaries, there are things that are against us. But when you get this key... That changes the picture, so this army, oh, it's giant, it's many, it's vast, but it's more like an army of ants on an anthill. For if God is for us, what kind of anthill could be against us? God is the bulldozer that goes before us. If God goes before you, if God is on your side, who really cares who's against you? The Almighty One is on your side. Or just imagine, let's say, an eight-year-old boy. is out in the playground, and he gets surrounded by a few ten-year-old boys. He is in a great moment of terror. A lot of fear is in his heart. He's afraid of what is going to happen to him. But you know what? That fear will turn to absolute laughter. It will turn to absolute hope and confidence when he sees, coming around the corner, his 17-year-old brother running up to the scene. If God is for us... Could possibly be against us. If God is on our side, oh, we could have adversaries everywhere against us. But who cares? The Almighty One is on our side. So if Jesus has saved you, if you belong to Christ, you can say with Paul these words that if God is for us, who can be against us? What a promise this is! When God is on your side, you can say with the psalmist these words, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When God is for you, then you can say, of course, in the famous words of Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Likewise, If Jesus has saved you, then you can be certain that he will bring you down that long journey and bring you to the celestial city. That is, bring you to your final glorification. How can you know this? Because the God who is for you now is the God who's always been for you, and will always be for you remember the context just go back to the previous verses in verse 29 and 30 that we looked at last week you remember paul wrote these words for those whom god foreknew he also predestined and those whom god he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so here's the big question how can you know god is for you You can know that God is for you because before He even created the world, He chose you and set His love upon you. He determined your final destination that you would make it to the celestial city, He would completely transform you to be like His Son. He was for you when in time He called you. Do you remember the day? When he called you, I don't remember, I was too young, but I know there was a day when he called me to himself. He was for you when he not only called you, but he justified you, making you perfectly right before God the judge. And not only all of that, God didn't just plan to be for you from before time began. He was not just for you when he called you and justified you. He is for you in the sense that he will glorify you. And I point out to you again, this is past tense. Why is something that's a future event in the past tense? Because what God plans, God accomplishes. And God, before the foundation of the world, if you belong to Christ, He was for you. He was for you all the way through. He plans to glorify you. In other words, that future event is so certain that Paul can write it as if it's already happened. Oh, what strength for the Christian on this journey All of this then leads him to ponder. As he's pondering on this, he moves into verse 30 and he adds these words. What then shall we say to these things? What should you say to the fact that God's been for you all along? And then earlier before this, you remember, he's working out all things for your good. What should you say to all these things? That's when Paul comes to our verse today. If God is for us, who can be against us? What security? Now, just a quick objection here uh, that you might have asked last week and you might be asking now. Are we saying that someone can pray a prayer as, say, a five-year-old and then live like the devil their whole lives and they're going to be saved in the end for certain? Absolutely not. I have spoke many times to you about the necessity of perseverance in the Christian life. Let's never twist the Bible's teaching on grace to mean, oh, you know what? If you just said a few words, you're fine. You, can, you don't need to follow Jesus at all. No. The evidence that you are truly a Christian is you've given your life to Christ, you're seeking to follow him, and you are walking that path toward the celestial city. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect at all. But the question is, have you given your life to Christ? Are you seeking to follow him? That's the evidence that you truly belong to him. So never let somebody twist this message of grace. But for those of you who are walking this road, what this passage is meant to give you is utter confidence Total security that the God who is for you way back before the foundation of the world, who called you to himself, who will one day glorify you, he's been for you, and he is for you. So listen, that means you are invincible. You're not invincible in yourself. No, no, there's not some new age teaching that if you just get all these resources from within yourself, you can do it and you're strong. No, by yourself, you are weak. But you are invincible. Why are you invincible? For if God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, yes, your circumstances may be very bad. But God is overruling those circumstances for your ultimate good. Oh, yes, sin. You may sin many times. You don't want it. You hate it like Paul. That's another evidence you're truly a Christian. You hate sin. You're in in a war against it. You might say, oh, what's going on with this? Well, Christ died for those sins. Yes, one day death will kill you, but God will raise you from the dead. Oh, yes, evil powers are against you, but you can take your stand in the Lord and in his mighty power. Yes, judgment day is coming, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? So I ask you, in the words of Paul, what do you say in response to all these things? What is your response if you are a Christian, then Paul has given you right here a key, a key that sets you free from the prison of Doubting Castle. When all the things come against you and you're feeling overwhelmed, this is the key to not falling into despair. And maybe there's some of you who have joined our live stream today and you're kind of looking into Christianity. We're so glad that you've tuned in. And I would ask you, what do you say in response to all these things? Here's the biggest thing you've got to figure out in life. Is God for you? The Bible says that we are all naturally, by nature, the enemies of God. That is, we do not want to obey him. We do not want him to rule over us. We are in in an antagonistic relationship with him. But God, in his great grace and mercy, sent Jesus Christ into this world to reconcile us to himself. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. For right now, if you're not belonging to Christ, then this verse is the opposite, that God is against you. And if God is against you, what hope is there? But God can be for you. You can shout like Paul does here. If you give your life to Christ, you say, Jesus, save me. I'm sorry for my sins. I want to follow you. The good news of Christianity is he will reconcile himself to you, and God will then be for you give your life to Christ. What holds you back? What do you say to these things? Well, that's the first doubting castle. That's the way that we escape from all the things that are coming in on us, and we start to doubt because we feel like, oh, it's too much. The key to getting out is that God is for us. But here's what happens. We escape Doubting Castle, number one, we get back on the king's road, we're walking, we're following Jesus again, and pretty quickly, we actually get sidelined and get put into another. We give ourselves over to another Doubting Castle, because here's what inevitably happens to us. We may say, oh yes, okay, if God is for us, then yes, nothing really can stand against us. But here's the lingering doubt, is God really for us? It's true. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. But there's always a doubt in the back of our minds that we must wrestle through many times in our Christian life. Is God really for us? How can we know that for sure? I mean, we just talked about circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances sure look like God isn't really for us. And then, of course, there's, there's the ways that we sin and we fail him. and we, I mean, there's that sin that you've asked forgiveness for so many times you've lost track of. Will God ever grow tired of you? Will God ever grow weary of your endless asking for forgiveness for that sin? So many times you've professed, Jesus, I'm going to serve you now. Today I'm giving my life. I'm rededicating myself to you. It's going to be different this time. And then, I don't know, whatever happens to those resolutions. And when all these things add up in your mind, here's what happens. A doubt creeps in. And that doubt is simply this, is God really for me? I'll put it this way. This is the second castle of doubt. How can I be sure that God is completely on my side, especially considering how much I fail him? And in retrospect, I should have added, it just makes it too long, considering how much I fail him and how much my circumstances seem to even say the opposite. We could add that onto there as well. But this is the doubt underneath all this. How can I be sure? Okay, if God, it's true. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. But how can I be sure, absolutely sure, that God is completely on my side, especially when I sense all the ways that I failed him, and when I look at my circumstances and I see, oh, man, it doesn't seem like God is really on my side. This is the second question now that Paul asks. It's in verse 32. Let's look at it together. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the question. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is going to take a little bit of unpacking, but many of you know the name John Piper. John Piper says this is the most precious verse in the Bible to him. It's going to take a little unpacking, but if we stay with this... I think you're going to agree with him. This is one of the most incredible promises in all of the Bible because what Paul is trying to do for you here is to make you utterly convinced of God's love for you so that you can trust him no matter what your circumstances are, so that you can be sure that no matter how much even you fail him as you strive to obey him, he is still for you. He wants to banish all feelings that God may have abandoned you. That's what Paul wants to accomplish. And here's the key to notice. He doesn't do this simply by saying to you, you doubt God's love? No, guys, God is love. That's true, but it's vague. It's general. What you need when you're in second doubting castle and you're you're maybe falling into despair, you need far more than a general statement that God is love. You need far more than just a vague kind of, okay, God is love. What does that mean for me? What Paul is going to do for you here is he is going to give you facts, rock-solid facts that absolutely prove beyond all shadow of a doubt that God loves his children. Not vague generalities, absolute facts. And when you know these facts, if you get these facts, oh, you'll always have the key to open up the dungeon and escape Doubting Castle. So let's, here's what I want to do. I want to kind of rip apart this verse into all of its little pieces uh, and stick with all these little pieces because then at the end I want to bring them all back together again. So let's rip it all apart here. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. This verse is really two parts. There is the promise. This is what we're going to look at. The promise is, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But Paul does not begin with the promise. He puts a foundation underneath the promise. And you've got to get the foundation. If you get the foundation, the promise will always be there for you. But the reason why we don't always trust the promise is we haven't got the foundation sure. So Let's spend a little time first on the foundation, which is this, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let's rip that into a few pieces, okay? Let me ask you this question. Who put Jesus on the cross? That question is not just some theory question I'm asking you. If you can answer that question, You will have the key to get out of all doubting castles. If you can answer that question, I'm not overstating this to say, you will always be able to combat all doubts, all things, all despair that comes into your life. You will have the key for everything. If you can answer that question. So, who is it who put Jesus on the cross? Now, you might say, well, uh, it was the crowds. I mean, they're the ones that called for his crucifixion. That would be true. You might say, it was Judas. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. If you answer that, that also is true. You might answer Pilate. Pilate's the one who basically gives the legal authorization for this to happen. And if you answer Pilate, that is also true. You might say, it's the soldiers. They're the ones who actually pierced his wrist. They're the ones that pierced his feet. If you answer that, that's also true. But none of those are the ultimate answer. Here in this passage, as in so many others, We get to see behind the curtain, as it were. We get to see who really put Jesus on the cross. Here it is in these words. Who is it? He, being God, is the one who gave him up for us all. God is the one who gave up his son for us all. Acts 2.23 says the exact same thing. Jesus delivered up according to what? Pilate's uh, schemings, the crowd's plans. Is that is that why Jesus was delivered up? No. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Oops, I'm going to break the TV. I'm getting too excited. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is the one who planned the death of his own son. God is the one before the foundation of the world who planned to give up. He who is most precious to himself, his own beloved son, God is the one who planned it. So the cross was not an accident. Yes, all those other players were involved. But ultimately, what Paul is saying here is that it was God who gave him up. Now, here's the next question you've got to be able to answer. Notice that there's another line in here. Notice he says that he he did not spare his own son. Why did he not spare his own son? Think this through a little bit deeper. When you see this language of did not spare his own son, does that make you think of any other Bible story? I know we often play Bible Jeopardy here, but there's no one really here today. I just got some tech people, and they're too focused on what they're doing uh, right now. So often I like to play Bible Jeopardy with you. What what Bible story do you remember that has this language of did not spare his own son? Do you know? Abraham and Isaac. You know the story. This language recalls Abraham and his son Isaac when Abraham lifted up the knife above his son, but he spared his son... When the voice spoke from heaven and told him to stop, and God provided a ram as a substitute so that his son Isaac did not have to die. Now, notice the opposite here. In Jesus' case, the father gave up his most precious son, but God the father did not spare his son. The knife came down upon Jesus there was no voice from heaven ordering the whole thing to stop. There was no substitute ram that could be put in the place of of Jesus. No, God did not spare his own son. So who put Jesus on the cross? Ultimate answer, God did. Now here's the second question. Why? Why would God not spare his own beloved son? You can't say it's because the father didn't love the son. He has always loved the son from before you and I were ever born for all of eternity past. The father and the son are in a perfect relationship with each other along with the spirit. The father loves the son, but he gave him up, and he did not spare him. Why? The answer's still in one more piece within the foundation. Here it is. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up. Here's the key phrase. For us all. For us all. John Piper puts this perfectly. God did not spare his own son because It was the only way he could spare us. Here is the ultimate proof of God's love. You and I, our sins are the great problem here. It's not God who is the problem. Our sins are worthy of condemnation. Our sins will bring us into hell. Our sins are the ones that make us antagonistic towards God and make us at odds with Him. But God, out of a great act of love, gave up His own Son. He did not spare Him at the cross. Why did He do this? So that you and I could have our sins forgiven. We could be justified before God. We could be completely transformed into the image of his son and brought into God's world to spend eternity with him. God did not have to do that for us at all. But out of the greatest act of love there ever was, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Okay, so those are the pieces that we put together for the foundation Now, if you stayed with all of that, now you're ready for one of the greatest promises in all the Bible that can help you through so many situations. We're ready to see this key that will free you from ever thinking that God's love may decrease, that he may grow tired of you, he may grow weary of you, or that he will not finally save you even if he's called you in the beginning. So let's follow the logic now. There's the foundation. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the promise. If God did all this for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now follow this logic. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. That's how we could put this first of all. In other words, God, who did the greatest thing of all, of giving up his own son for you, how can you not then imagine? Why would you ever doubt that he would do the lesser, easier things of giving you things like you need a job? He'll give you a job. He gave up his own son for you. Don't you think he can provide for your basic needs? You're going through trials. You need to be sustained through these trials. He gave up his own son for you. How will then he not also just give you the ability to persevere no matter how hard that trial may be? You worry you might not make it to the end He gave up his own son for you. You don't think he can graciously give you what you need to persevere to the end? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Or we could put it this way. Same thing. It's an argument from the harder to the easier. In other words, if God has done the hardest thing imaginable, which for God, this is the hardest thing, giving up his own most beloved son to give him up to not spare him, if God did that hardest thing imaginable, don't you think he can do the far easier things of being patient with you even though you're not perfect yet? Don't you think he can do the much easier thing of being patient with you and persevering along the journey, giving you all the things you need to live your Christian life, to bring you finally into his celestial city? See, the love of God, this is what you need. You don't just need a general statement that God is love. You need proof, rock-solid proof. And that is what Paul gives you in this promise. You can use this promise for everything in life. I was praying this as I came to church this morning. Honestly, just feeling a little bit down this morning, struggling to keep my thoughts clear even for this message. So here's how I prayed this morning. Father, I need your, I need your help to be able to speak this morning. That's what I'm asking you for. This is the all things. This is one of the all things I need today. I need the ability to speak. I, Lord, you've given me this job. It's not always the easiest. I need your help. And so what I pleaded was, God, you gave up your son for me. You did that really hard thing. It's a pretty easy thing to just give me your spirit to do one more sermon. And there's like millions of other preachers preaching today. You can do it all for them. So if you could do this hardest thing, surely you could do the easiest thing and give me your spirit to be able to speak today. That's how you pray this promise all the time. This is what will convince you of God's love. Not some vague general God is love statement, but what God did to prove his love. Let me put this in the form of a story. Hopefully bring it home to your heart. There's once a young man, and he's working in the mines, and he had a tragic injury. He was a strong Christian guy, but he had a tragic injury, which left him bedridden the rest of his life. So over the years, he would watch out his window and occasionally he'd see some of his old you know, guys he would work with in the mine, he'd see them going by. He watched as they grew up, he watched as they got married, he'd see them uh, with their wives pushing along a baby carriage and eventually he even watched them become grandparents with their grandkids. He saw all this from his window. He also heard how the, the company he had worked for became more and more successful, greater wealth, and yet made no adequate provision for his loss. He watched as his body began to wither. He watched as his house crumbled. And he watched as all his hopes for a better life eventually just faded away and died. One day, a young man came to see him. In the course of the conversation, this young man said, I don't mean to press too, I don't want to be too insensitive, but I hear that you're a Christian. I I, I know you believe that God loves you. But when you look around at all in your life, how, how can you say that God loves you? And the old man, laying in his bed, thought for a few moments, and then he smiled. He said, yes, there are days when I do doubt. There are days when it seems like Satan himself comes and he sits on the end of my bed, and then he points me out the window and makes me think about all the things that are going on that I have missed. He points me to my friends who have all gotten married. They've had children. They've they've had grandchildren now. And then he says to me, Does God really love you? And then he begins to point me to my tattered old house, which is beginning to fall down all around me. He points me to all of the beautiful houses that my friends live in. And he says, Does God really love you? And then he makes me think about one of my friends who has a beautiful granddaughter. This man has everything I've ever wanted, but I've never had. He points me to that man, and then he waits until I feel a little emotional and the mist begins to form in my eyes. And then he says in my ear a last time, does God really love you? The young man was kind of taken aback by how honest the older man was being. And he said to him, well, how how do you respond when you're struggling with these doubts of God's love for you? How, How do you think that through? How do you not fall into despair? And the old man said, well, I take Satan by the hand and I take him to a hill called Calvary. He points me to things And there I point him to things. I point him to the nail-pierced hands. I point him to the thorn-pierced brow. I point him to the spear-pierced side. And then I say to him, Oh, how God loves me. Friends, that is the way you deal with the doubts. That is the only way you can be saved from the giant of despair. You need more than just vague generalities of God loves me. What you need are facts. And what you need to do is go back to Romans 8.32. Memorize this verse. Remember the logic of it that he who did not speak Spare his own son. If God would not spare his own son, but he would give us up, give him up for us all and put your name in there, as Paul does in other places when he says, The Son of God loved me, Paul, and and he gave himself for me. Same thing here, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me, how will he not also then graciously give me all that I need to persevere to the end of this journey? Be gone, doubts. Be gone, despair. Whatever may be going on in my life, the one thing I am sure of is that God still loves me, for he proved it in not sparing his own son. And then you're back on the king's road, and there are many other things that you'll have to face along the way. We'll look at some more next week. But later in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, another character comes along, a man named Mr. Greatheart. He and his friends come across Doubting Castle on their journey to the celestial city, and they decide they want to try and kill the giant of despair. But it's way harder than they thought. Just like in life, despair is like a cat with many lives. But they eventually kill him and they cut off his head. And then they set to tearing down Doubting Castle, but that too is a major job. It takes seven days to tear down Doubting Castle. And what Bunyan's trying to say to us with all of that is, along the long journey toward the celestial city, we will have to face this giant, and he is not easy to kill. Despair is something we all struggle with. There are so many doubts, and we must face them. We must persevere against them. We must continually make war against them. But friends, right here in Romans 8, 31 and 32, you don't just have a key that will set you free. Really, what you've got here are weapons. Weapons to kill the giant of despair. Tools with which to tear down Doubting Castle. Live in Romans chapter 8 so that you can walk away and bury the giant of despair under his own castle. These are the great promises of God. You need never fear when the opposition seems too much against you. For if God is for you, who can be against you? And when you begin to maybe doubt, well, how can I know if God is really for me? Then you begin to ponder upon the facts that God did not spare his most beloved son, but he gave him up for you. Why would he do such a thing? He did it to spare you. And if he would spare you at such a high cost, then will he not also, graciously, along with him, give you all that you need to persevere and get to the end of your journey? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Romans 8. I pray that the truths of this text would work deep into our hearts, that we would come back to this time and time again, For, Lord, this journey is hard, this journey is long, there's much that is against us. But, oh, how grateful we are that we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. How grateful we are, God, that you're not just sort of for us, but that you are totally for us. That you are on our side, and so we trust in you. No matter what our circumstances say, we trust in you that you will give us all that is necessary to bring us to the end of the journey. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, last week we told you that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. This is not an add-on to the service the Lord's Supper is never just an additional thing as if we're going to go do something else now. No, this is really the culmination of the service. This is the crescendo of the service. For everything that we've done so far has built up to this point now where we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. For Jesus told us that we are to do this regularly in remembrance of Him. So what we do is we take bread. The bread points us to Jesus' body on the cross. The cup points us to His blood shed on the cross. Now here's the question. Why would Jesus tell us to regularly remember his death of all the things that we're supposed to remember why not remember him turning oh i don't know multiplying the bread walking on water why would we not remember old testament stories why is it just about the death of christ Uh, because so easily we forget what god has done for us and all the implications of it that's why jesus says constantly come back and do this in remembrance of me So as we come to celebrate this now together, we want to come back to remember again God's great love for us, not some love which is vague in general, but here in these tangible symbols, we will see his love for us in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's prepare our hearts now, and here's what I want to do. We're going to sing a song in a moment that the worship team is going to lead us through that speaks again to Jesus giving up his life for us. The Father sent the Son, and the Son voluntarily gave up his life. So this song is going to remind us, as we sing it, prepare your heart to partake of the Lord's Supper. Maybe take a moment, say, Jesus, forgive me of any sins I have committed against you. Forgive me for all the doubts and despair I've had against you. Lord, put me back on the King's path that I might follow you. So prepare your heart as we sing, and then we'll come back to myself and I'll lead you through a time where we will celebrate the supper. Let's turn it over to the music team now and sing together.